This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety Community of rich okay. organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we have Robin Gold, the uh, Pro Vice Chancellor of Commerce and the Dean of the Business School. But more importantly, he's a health economist. And he'll be with us for the next half hour, after which he has a business meeting to go to. Well, Robin, why? what is it in our recent history that makes workers and staff generally shiver and pull up a drawbridge when they hear the word reform? Well, uh, Morena, and very good to be here, Marvin, and thank you for the invite onto the show. Um, I'll answer the question in a moment, but I just want to, for the record, um, I'm no longer the Pro Vice Chancellor of Commerce and Dean of the Business School. I finished end of February in that role, and I now have a joint appointment between the Dunedin School of Medicine and the Otago Business School working on sort of healthcare management uh, type questions. Um, So now your question was, um, what is it that people um, uh, uh, um, get up, get concerned about when they hear hear the word reform? Yes. Yes. Um, Well, I I guess, you know, in the healthcare sector, we have a history in this country of, you know, large-scale reforms in the healthcare system. And for those who've been working um, and observing the system for long enough, it tends to often mean that that there is going to be, you know, very, very stormy waters ahead. It's going to take a very, very long time. The reform goals are not necessarily going to be delivered on, being the key, key point of allergy, I guess, to the idea of reform, uh, and that it's going to be messy and costly. Well, that sounds true to form. <laughs> so, what do you? One would think that after the COVID crisis and so on, health workers would have earned the respect of management and would, and management would listen to their opinion on the direction of health reform. However, if one looks at the results of the survey on health staff opinion and the response to uh, what a Tiwate or a New Zealand Health, um, that doesn't seem to be the case. And the chief executive, Marjorie Appas, didn't seem to be too respectful of the workers when she talked about their, um, when she was asked about this survey, the first thing she said, oh, this is to union workers. You know, as as though it wasn't worth bothering talking about it. 
what's the how do, can you really have I mean the the health system's really to a large extent based on people working in health doctors nurses technicians it's not I mean the buildings are important and I suppose management's important but the basis of it is those those very workers we're talking about isn't it that that's absolutely right I mean the health health the health system uh, needs healthcare professionals at the heart of it, at, 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 at leading and being involved in all decision making. And then, of course, you need people to support to support those clinically led decisions. And that would be the you know the various people who sit behind the scenes. You might call them professional or not non health professional staff. Um, in the university, we call them professional staff, which is people who are involved in ad- delivering administrative services, support services. And in a good, a really good health system, uh, you will have all of the key decision making being driven by uh, healthcare professionals, practicing healthcare professionals. This is a system that we call uh, clinical governance, clinical governance and clinical leadership, meaning that you're putting the, the decision making, the governance, the oversight of the system in the hands of the healthcare professionals. And then it's the job of management to support and ensure that the resources are in place to support uh, good clinical governance, which at the end of the day is decision-making that's going to deliver safe, high-quality care that's also efficiently delivered because it's also a responsibility of healthcare professionals to ensure that the services are delivered as efficiently as possible. This is, a, a, this is actually a really interesting area when you think about you know, efficiency of clinical services from a clinical angle. Uh, so it might mean, for example, it's much more efficient for a hospital specialist and a GP when they talk with each other to deliver some of the services through the GP clinic with the assistance of a nurse who's received some uh, additional training to support that process. Uh, it would be much more efficient from the patient perspective. It may be much more efficient in resource terms, and it gets held up often because of professional boundaries, healthcare professional boundaries and disagreements ultimately around the scope of practice that are really, really difficult for the different professional groups, you know, the specialists and the GPs to work through to make the system more efficient in that regard. But this is this is all the stuff of clinical governance and clinical leadership. So do you think the healthcare workers do get enough real consultation when reforms are made? I mean, it seems to me that they don't feel like they get enough in many cases. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think they do. Um, I think there is a lot of scope to bring the professional voice in much, much more strongly. Um, uh, you know, there are, there are healthcare professionals who work in the Ministry of Health who will have been advising uh, the minister um, and the government of the day when they... Um, presided over these current reforms that are in process. Uh, but the reforms were largely designed, I think, by non-professionals. There was this uh, review group that, uh, led by Heather Simpson um, that predates the current set of reforms. I just can't remember the exact year. I think it was about 2018 or 19 that they delivered their, their report suggesting some modifications to the DHB system. There would have been some good professional input into that work as well. So it was a kind of a mix of uh, 
groups feeding into into their decision making as well. But we need we need more professional involvement actually in health system design um, and health services delivery design. Um, and there's a lot of literature on this. I've done research on this as well myself and published a lot of papers on it. That clinic, strong clinical leadership really makes a difference, and we don't we don't give this enough credit. We don't give this idea enough credit. If we did. Uh, we would probably have a different way of thinking about how we train healthcare professionals in the first place, how we organise them and how we support them, and then also what we expect of them. Speaking of that, isn't the, one of the first hurdles the actual cost of getting a medical degree, even even nurses, but particularly for doctors and specialists? They have a huge um uh, debt often by the time they're finished unless they come from wealthy families. And also, it must discourage people to enter the profession if they come from backgrounds where their family has been in debt and they don't want to be in debt. What would happen if if uh, teachers and medical professional people got a free education would they, and perhaps you could even bond them for a couple of years after, wouldn't, wouldn't you be more likely to get a more, more health care workers and also more health care workers that were happy to work in the system and felt an increased obli obligation to public health? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think the, the people we're training at the moment um, have that commitment that you've described. I mean, I don't think there's too much question about that, although there is probably quite an incentive uh, because of the, the cost structures of training, especially in medicine, um, and that's where the opportunities lie, to go into private practice. Um, that, that's private specialist practice where um, specialists can generate significant income compared to the public work that they do. I mean, GPs have always been private in this country. They're private in many countries. Uh, that's the sort of the, the received model, I guess. Um, and there is some, you know, there's a gradual evolution, I think, towards GPs becoming salaried in this country in the same way in which hospital specialists are salaried. So you've got that, you've got that financial incentive to want to, you know, generate back the loan that you've taken and so forth, pay it off, and then uh, move into having a good livelihood if it was free uh, and there were bonding, I mean, that's that's an interesting concept and there's been a lot of discussion of that in this country in the past, you know, experiments with um, uh, with students who come from um, rural areas, for example, who get special provision uh, in terms of the fees that they pay and the expectations once they've graduated if they go back and work in, a, in rural medicine uh, in New Zealand. It's a very, very interesting idea um, and, you know, it probably needs more discussion and analysis in this country. Of course, it would come at, you know, it would need good economic analysis, actually, as to what the long-term costs and benefits were to uh, fully funding a place in medical school, which would probably add, I think, I don't know, it would probably add about $20,000 a year or something to the cost of putting a student through medical school because the government already picks mm -hmm. up, um, I think, about sort of 70 or 80% of the cost they're already funding as they do for any student in university. 
Um, so there'd be that additional cost. But then the really interesting question, and it would need to be modelled, would be the long-term benefit, especially of bonding. Wouldn't you be much more likely to want as, as high a pay as possible if you have a huge debt? Isn't oh, absolutely. A- absolutely. And yep. are you going to lower your fees after you pay your debt? And, you know, you say it takes you five or ten years to pay off your debt, and that's probably conservative. Um, are you going to lower your fees once you get the debt paid? I mean, you've got your fees then. You've got, you're headed in a certain direction. And what? So, yeah, no, I've never seen that happening. I've never heard of it. It might actually save the country and the government money in the long run. I mean, some of the most uh, economically successful countries, including small countries like Finland, have free education across the board, and they feel like it, it pays off economically in the long run. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean that Finland's a really interesting example. Because uh, they don't have oil, they don't have coal, they all they got is forests and also te- uh, technological um, education. And so they make the best use of their human resources. That's right, yep. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting country, Finland. Um, and it would be useful for us to be looking at those sorts of models. Um, so no, I, 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 I take your point and I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, edu- education is a public good, and um, investment in education is really, really important for any society. Isn't this part of our problem? We have a confusion in New Zealand over private and goods and uh, public or social community goods. And so you would say that healthcare and education are public goods. Well, I, I, I think they are public goods because... Um, you know, when you look at an economy, you want an educated uh, economy. You you want your people to be educated so that they can, you know, work at the top of their scope, really, as a human being. You know, be as um, able to contribute in the most meaningful, uh, productive uh, way possible. And so in in the light of that, you know, reducing the barriers to education has got to be important. Reducing it as much as possible has got to be important. So education, thinking about it that way, really is a public good. Um, and the healthcare too, of course. I mean, there's a lot of work. You know, the healthcare field. I know. I know better. There's a lot of work globally around um, the economics of healthcare, demonstrating that a healthy population is a productive population, less likely to be having days off work. Um, more likely to be able to contribute productively in the workforce uh, and overall um, contributing to a healthier economic environment. So, yeah, the two are both public goods. I completely agree. Should, how do we, don't we have to really look at our taxes? Why do you think government, I mean, I'm old and I remember when people well, they didn't, people never loved taxes, but they didn't have an aversion to them in the 70s. We've actually, the, the government's actually encouraged, in, often, in many cases, particularly in the 80s and 90s, an aversion to paying taxes. Like, if you have wealth, you don't necessarily 
have a um, obligation to pay any more taxes than you legally have to, and you should avoid them if possible. Is that a healthy attitude? Well, um, it's a good question, and I mean, this is a global problem. Um, you know, I think any country you go to, you'll struggle to find people who say that that um, uh, that they love paying tax and would be happy to pay. Um, oh well, in fact, that's wrong. I mean, you you'll you'll find people everywhere globally who will say that they are happy to pay tax in order to contribute to society, but. Um, uh, across a broader population. I mean, I guess this is, this is why you have a political divide. You know, you have people who agree and then people who disagree. You know, people who want to pay less tax, they probably tend to be the better better off people. Um, and then you have people who want to see more tax being paid, more taxation, and they probably are, are from the um, less better off part of the community um, who are more likely to be missing out and would rather see redistribution going on within within the population. I mean, some of this has to do with cohesion, I think, within a society and coming back to Finland again. I mean, this is a very high tax country, but they have very high levels of cohesion as well. I think everyone, you know, the top tax bracket is something like 60%. Then they've got free education and free health care and all sorts of other social services, high levels of cohesion. Um, so they're, they're very, very interesting questions, really. Well, shouldn't we be really looking at this again? I'm sorry, what was the, shouldn't, shouldn't we, we be looking at these issues again? Is it disheartening when people say we won't think about um, capital gains tax? We won't really think about taxes, certainly not until the next after the next election. Um, that's a pretty common thing to hear in New Zealand, probably in the most of the English speaking world. Oh, it's it's very common. Um, you know, no one wants to pay more tax. Uh, people who've been mm. advantaged don't want to lose that advantage. It's you know, it's really this is very difficult territory. And when you're in a democratic society and you've got governments who are put to the vote every sort of three years or so, um, and we've seen this in our country, um, you know, the government is not prepared to take tough decisions on these sorts of questions. You look at France at the moment. Where Macron um, has you know, pushed through this legislation to raise the um, the retirement age to I think it was at sixty four, sounds pretty good to me. Um, you know, rioting going on. You know, no one wants to see a shift in the circumstances that they've enjoyed. So it's politically very very difficult territory. One of the um, things that surprised me is they did a survey of. Uh, people about would you would you be willing to pay more taxes if the retirement age wasn't raised to seventy? If you know if they stabilized the retirement age, and a lot of people said they'd be willing to pay more taxes for that particular issue. Mm, yeah, to keep retirement age at sixty-five. Maybe the maybe we're asking the wrong questions instead of being asking why. Um, if you want more taxes, you should ask, what kind of services do you want? What kind of society do you want? And then, then talk about taxes in relation to that. Yes, and I think, you know, I, I, I think this is what the Scandinavians do quite well. 
and this is historic for them. They've had, um, I'm a bit rusty on this, but if you go to countries such as Sweden, Norway, uh, Denmark, and I think Finland as well would be in on this model they call the third way. You know, this is going back a generation or two now. Um, in fact, I was a political science student at Victoria University of Wellington, and I did a course on um, Scandinavian politics. And um, uh, uh, they practiced what they called the third way. This is way, way before Tony Blair, and Tony Blair's third way was a different concept. But um, the third way there was um, an ongoing conversation between uh, the unions, government, and uh, business. And to ensure that they had a, a well-managed economy in a three-way partnership to ensure that everyone was able to achieve reasonable goals. And, um, and, and they've, they've always functioned in this way, that you don't take too much. You know, neither group takes too much. You, you, you try and get a balance between the three groups to ensure that the economy is you know, cohesive, that you have a cohesive society, that everyone's looked after. And, um, uh, and they've had this ongoing agreement, of course, they have higher taxes, higher access to social services, uh, and so forth, you know, some fairly productive big companies. Uh, Germany does this to a certain extent, I understand as well. Does New Zealand doesn't really look like that. I mean, they did a, the RID did a survey, a report. Apparently, um, the, the highest paid people in New Zealand, the, the, the one of the greatest wealth, give the littlest, have the smallest tax rate. They pay fewer taxes than somebody on the uh, lowest wages, even on the benefit. Is that likely to produce cohesion and, and make ordinary people willing to pay more taxes, if they realize that? Oh, I, I, I don't think at all. I mean, I think, you know, ordinary people reading in this um, uh, would probably be quite upset about it, actually. Um, you know, this is what you, I think, would see as an injustice. You know, most people would see this as unjust, um, that everyone should pay their fair share regardless of um, where they sit within society. The question of the fair share is a very interesting one. Um, and then how you set up a taxation system to ensure that the fair share is contributed uh, is very, very important. And obviously, we have not got to that point in New Zealand yet. Actually, I suspect we were more at that point in New Zealand 40 or 50 years ago than we are now. We've gone backwards. Yeah, mm. So what would it take to make us look? Because I'm sure that America and Great Britain... One of the reasons they're fractured is because of the inequalities in those countries, particularly America. That actually, if you have deep enough inequality, you also get a fractured society. I mean, there are other reasons for uh, having social fractures. For instance, um, concentrating on individual groups instead of the whole politics of Subtraction is a set of politics of addition, but one of the things that makes me sad about Jacinda Ardern, I think she had the 
the support to actually introduce these questions, and the Labour Party decided they wouldn't. Yes, yes, no, I, I think you're right. Mm. And we're willing to talk about almost anything else except taxation and economic inequality. Mm. Well, I guess the, you know these, these are these are defining issues and um, and are dividing issues. And you know, when it comes to politics, you don't want to divide your society. You want to try and seek as broad a consensus as you can achieve in order to get the votes that you need to maintain power. This is the basic stuff of politics, and I think that's what you've just described. She has um, encountered. Well, she had the the votes in her second term. And you can, it's one thing to say you're not going to consider taxation this term. It's another thing you say you'll never consider it while I'm in office. And that's, that's a real problem. I mean, it's like having the talents and then refusing to use them. That's right. Yep. Yep. And, you know, again, it's, um, you know, I'll come back to the point just made before. This is the basic stuff of politics. You know, maintaining power, um, observing potential fractures within the population as a consequence of decisions that you might make and then refraining from taking such decisions. Maybe if you don't take those decisions in the long run, you get bigger fractions. Well, and, you know, governments, I mean, tend, governments tend to fall, ultimately. Um, <laughs> you know, they get, they get voted out. Yeah, but I think, for instance, in the case of America and Britain, it's not just governments getting voted out. It's it's um, creating a society that has permanent fractures that are out in the open and, and, and people being so alienated that it's hard to see how they're going to um, heal. That's right. Yep. That's absolutely right. And I guess this is where, you know, good political leadership is absolutely critical. It has to have some courage as well as as well as being able to talk well. Mm. Mm. That's right. What would you hope for? Mm. Um, oh, that's a big question. Um, uh, healthy, health, uh, a healthy life not to have to come into not to have to encounter the healthcare system um, which is struggling you get great treatment in our healthcare system when you're able to access that treatment um, uh, you know I would not want to have to bury my life's savings into uh, receiving private treatment should I not be able to be treated in the public sector so yeah a, long, a, a healthy life um, and having fun. That's what I hope for, is having fun. Okay. Being well, at peace. Being at peace. Well, of course, being at peace sometimes can mean uh, doing what you can for the community. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And enjoying people, you know, enjoying people and community. Do you find that you're able to get people to ask good questions and maybe think about the direction of the country, health, particularly when it comes to health and economics? 
Yeah, that, yeah I, I think people do ask good questions. You know, we have a we have a um, an intelligent population in this country, and um, we have freedom of speech and freedom of thought, which is to be valued and treasured. And um, I think our people do ask good questions, and I think every day I hear people asking really good questions about all sorts of matters that sit in front of them. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. I think you have about two minutes. Are you hopeful that people will start ask some of the some politicians will start asking the hard questions in the next you know in the next six years or so? Well, let's see. Let's see. Um, you know, and the tough questions are about our economy, you know, about issues such as our housing market. Um, inflation, of course. I mean, this is a really, really serious issue, the cost of living, and these are global problems, and uh, we need to hope that the future these issues resolve themselves through asking hard questions and coming up with decent answers for them. Well, I know you have to go to a meeting, but thanks a lot for coming on board, uh, Robin Gold, and Remember, you can podcast this by going to oar.org and then going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. Thanks, Robin, for coming on board, and we'll catch you again sometime this year. Thanks very much, Marvin, and um, all the very, very best. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Yeah.
but they got nothing to spare. They complain about the people who live on welfare. Too many, too many millionaires. Yeah, now. He's a connoisseur, a raconteur. He's real shy He tells his chauffeur But he don't call me sir Ain't he a wonderful guy Tell us all about it Tell us again Tell us how your money Ain't everything Tell us all about it Tell it to our face How you wanna join us In the human Well, that was too many millionaires. Unfortunately, Robin Gold had to go to a meeting early. But I think the uh, theme of too many millionaires is a, should actually be too many billionaires. And according to the IRA report, there's about 311 people who earn. 7% of their income from personal taxable income and the rest of it from um, investment and so on, which they pay very little in the way of taxation. In many cases, nothing in taxation. And we've become a society in which land and, and homes, instead of being a place to live, is a place to earn unearned income. A commercial venture. When are we going to have a discussion of taxation? When are we going to have a discussion of the public good, the connection between housing, health, and education? When do we start that conversation? We, we have an obligation to expect our politicians and political parties and other leaders of society to think of the common good of the earth, the common good of humanity, and the common good of the society they live in. That's what we have a right to expect of any of our leaders any of our politicians, and also our businesses, the obligation to the common good. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.